And um, it's much more important to understand that it's not just that you win, it's how you win that matters. All right, welcome back to the Voice of Santa Clara podcast. My name is Darius Johnson, and we are here today with a very special episode. We are here with Jim Miller, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Wayfair. Um, so we are very, very uh, happy to have you here, Jim. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. So essentially, you know, to kick it off, um, we have all three of us here uh, today. So you guys probably already know us, but would love to uh, just, again, do do quick intro. So you know me, I'm Darius. I'm the operating host of the podcast. And my name is Malachi Finn. I am the host and uh, the editor for the podcast. And my name is Antonio Magallanes. I am the host and marketing officer for the podcast. Cool. So, Jim, to kick it off, um, you know, I could sit here and spend all of our time walking through your very detailed and accomplished background. Um, but I think it would be best to kind of leave that to you. So I'd love to take this opportunity for you to maybe kind of summarize and talk at a high level um, more about you, your background, um, kind of maybe what got you interested in this space of technology, um, just so you know, the audience can kind of hear more about kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, that's great. Um, as Darius said, I'm, I'm currently the uh, Chief Technology Officer for Wayfair. I've had this really, and now looking back on it, more so retrospectively than anything, I've had an amazing career. And I would say that, you know, my career really is uh, is a result of a lot of hard work, being at the right place at the right time, and some calculated risks. But, you know, education-wise, uh, I'm an aerospace engineer and I'm an electrical engineer from Purdue University. And then I went to MIT for grad school and got my engineering degrees there. Uh, but I also uh, got a master's in, in management uh, from MIT as well. So... You know, I'm way overeducated. And then my career really has been a, a history of going to these interesting tech companies at very interesting times. And again, it's been a little bit lucky in that, um, you know, being again at the right place at the right time. But uh, started at IBM, you know, that's where I started my career. Uh, after grad school, I was at Intel. I ended up being on the startup team of the Pentium, which really brought in the whole microprocessor um, more on a, a whim than anything else. I moved to Seattle. I ended up working uh, on a company that Bill Gates owns that now is, for all intents and purposes, developed the technology of the Starlink satellites uh, that are now uh, being launched by Elon Musk and SpaceX. Uh, and then I found myself living in Seattle and I met Jeff Bezos uh, in the early days of Amazon and was ran a big chunk of, uh, of Amazon. My, my buddy and I and another guy, uh, we built the fulfillment operations from Amazon, really with the modern fulfillment operations that you see today. I left uh, to move down to the Bay Area where I worked for Cisco as an executive. Uh, and then I ended up being uh, in the right place at the right time, met some of the early Googlers and ended up joining Google in 2010 and really led a big part of the organization through really the next big phase of its growth. Uh, and I ran the team that that helped build the Google Cloud, among other things. And then I was really candidly looking to kind of ease back into a more, you know, less hectic life of boards, advising. And that's how I got on the Wayfair board, where I was on the board for four years. And then 
because partly driven by the pandemic and the chaos of 2020, the board and the founders asked me to be the, the CTO. And that's a role that I've held for the last 18 months. And uh, it's been a wild ride, but, you know, a bunch of things in between there. But, you know, uh, again, I've been super lucky to have worked with great people and for great people. And uh, yeah. I'm curious because you mentioned you met Jeff Bezos and you worked for Google at an early stage. So I'm sure we're all wondering, like, what are those leaders like, you know, and kind of can you break down, you know, some, some things that you learn from them? Because, you know, when you're working with people who I'm sure we see, you know, around everywhere and they're building these great companies and, and, and you're really working in the grunt of all that, what is it like being in that type of environment? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've spent the majority of my career working for founders. And I, I don't think that that was, in retrospect, it was a bit of an accident, but there's a common thread that runs among all those. I mean, I've spent time around Andy Grove when I was at Intel, obviously Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Larry and Sergey, and, and the rest of the founding team at Google. And now I work for a founder, Nuri Shaw and Steve Conine at, at Wayfair. So the vast majority of my professional career has been around founders. Founders are... They're unique. They're a special breed. Um, and they, they are idiosyncratic in all the interesting and fun ways. The thing that most impressed me about working with founders is they have a vision of the future that very, very few people see. And, you know, the early days of Amazon, of Google, of Wayfair, you know, whatever, where even the early days of Intel, where these people, you know, all these people had great jobs. They could go and, and just, you know, have a very normal life, and they chose to have a very unusual life. And Jeff Bezos was a senior vice president at D.E. Shaw. It's a very well-known uh, trading company on Wall Street, very well-respected. And he packed up his bags with his wife, moved across the country from New York to Bellevue, Washington, to start this crazy company to sell books online. And you know, the normal, that's not what normal people do, quote unquote, normal people that aren't risk takers. They, they go the path that's kind of not the, the less beaten path, but uh, they, they take the path that everybody expects them to go do. And founders have this amazing capability to see a future world that at least I don't have the capability of doing or seeing. And their superpower is, and I think this is a common thread among them, in spite of a lot of people telling them it can't be done or it's been tried before or even you'll fail, with almost undying conviction and unwavering commitment, they see and ultimately create a world for the, of the future that they envision. And I see it with all these founders. And, and, you know, Silicon Valley, we're in the hotbed of innovation in the world. That's what these people are capable of doing. And... You know, it's super impressive to see, you know, particularly a company like Amazon that, you know, did e-commerce. They started in e-commerce. They've got, you know, Amazon Web Services. They've got Prime. They built a logistics company. They built a digital company. I mean, they, they keep doing it over and over again. Um, so, but again, these founders are, are amazing people. They're fun to be around. Uh, they're incredibly unique and and every, almost without exception, all of my interactions with them, I see and learn something that I, even to this day, you know, it's like, wow, that was an amazing interaction. I just got off the phone with Nuridge and we were talking about the evolution of the organization of Wayfair. And again, it was one of these conversations where it was like, wow, like I learned a lot from that last 30 minutes of, of his worldview 
uh, of thinking about you know how the company will evolve as you know we take on new businesses and grow globally. So again, these are just unique individuals, and we're for the most part lucky to have them. I kind of want to pivot a little bit more on your upbringing because I know you said you started at aerospace, and obviously now you're in technology. So I just kind of want to touch more on like where your interest in technology came from, and like was it something you discovered as a child, or is it something that grew in college or beyond? Now, it's a great question. Actually, it was funny because somebody asked me this a couple of nights ago. I was out to dinner and they were, they asked a very similar question. And I have to admit, I haven't thought about it much. Um, so I'm 56 and I grew up in the shadow of the, the race to the moon. Um, and I grew up in the Midwest. You know, I'm, I'm the grandkids of immigrants. I'm the first kid to, in my family to have gone to college. I have dyslexia, so I can't read worth a darn. A lot of dyslexics are pretty good at math and science. They're not so good at reading and, and uh, some of the more liberal arts. So I gravitated as a kid toward a lot of math and science. But really, I mean, I grew up watching the Apollo missions. Uh, and for me, that really sparked my interest in space and technology, something I'm so passionate about to this very day. And then I don't think kids do this as much as, as when I was a kid. But, you know, we lived outside. Like, you know, I mean, maybe it wasn't any safer than it is today. But, you know, we would run out of the house at eight in the morning with our, you know, with all of our sports gear or whatever. And then we'd come home when it was either dark or it was dinner time. You know, so I grew up like running around the woods and, and, you know, being in nature and, you know, around animals and things like that. So that really sparked my interest in, in science and, and biology and things like that. And then I was growing up, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, you know, funny, funny story, I had an opportunity to meet Neil Armstrong, who was a professor at the University of Cincinnati. And I knew I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And, you know, Neil went to Purdue and he convinced me to go to Purdue versus, you know, maybe the University of Michigan or Ohio State. Uh, and that's how I ended up being at Purdue. And, you know, and, and I was an aerospace engineer and, and I still love it. And I, that's how I started my career out. But, you know, I started to get interested in computing and technology. And I was also, when I was in high school, the personal computer came out. It wasn't anything like you guys see today. But I knew that that thing was going to change the world. And... For me, that really started my interest in, in you know, computing. And it was funny because when I was in school, we, I learned how to program on punch cards, which is like an antique now. And if you guys have been in the Midwest, and Darius knows this, you know, traipsing through the, the middle of Indiana in the winter when it's like 10 degrees outside is not a, you know, not a fun experience. Uh, and, you know, I had this personal computer that could run a Fortran compiler and, you know, I realized I can do the same thing in my living room of my apartment at college as I could do by traipsing half a mile across campus. And, I, and for me, that was like, oh my gosh, this thing's going to change the world. And that really started my whole journey, for lack of a better word, into technology. And again, I, being at the birth of the microprocessor with Intel, being at, at you know, a company like Amazon at the birth of e-commerce, really Cisco was an amazing company because it powered the internet and develop, develops all the, the networking infrastructure. And then, then going to Google and being part of the next big chapter of cloud computing, I mean, to me, it, again, just kind of lucky. And, and But those are the things that I'm passionate about. And to this day, I give my parents a lot of credit. I think, you know, 
was it upbringing? Uh, you know, I'll let a psychologist decide that. But um, I think they imparted on me a lot of intellectual curiosity. And again, you know, that's something that I see with a lot of these founders is a deep, deep curiosity. You know, it's funny. I remember in the early days traveling with Jeff Bezos and Jeff and I are both space wonks. And I remember a couple of times once traveling with uh, Jeff and we were talking about um, private space travel. And I knew uh, now in hindsight, you know, he's created Blue Origin. But I knew at the time, I mean, I didn't know at the time, but I know now uh, he was talking about Blue Origin. Or we were talking about the Saturn V one time and, and the Apollo 11 mission. And Jeff got this wild idea, completely as far as I can tell, out of the blue to recover the first stage of the Saturn V, the Apollo 11 Saturn V stage. And he had to, you know, get these crew of people to go find it in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida where it uh, dropped when it um, was jettisoned from the, the lunar launch. I mean, these are the things that, you know, I happen to admit, I don't sit around and think about, oh, let me go find the first stage of the Apollo 11 Saturn V and then go do it. But that's what these founders do. And, and But again, I think back to having that intellectual curiosity for, hey, you know, how does that work, you know, and... That served me pretty well in these companies where we're not, we're creating, in many places, we're creating the model and the technology for something to be done. You have to have that type of intellectual curiosity. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I'm glad that you pointed out that aspect of your growing up and when you had that desire to play and go outside and really inspect things and explore. And I think that plays a large role, especially in a career space that you have gone into at this point that, you know, broadens that scope of what I can discover. And that, that's amazing. So our next question is really now that you are the CTO of Wayfair, can you elaborate on what this role entails? Like what does a typical day look like for you in this position? Yeah, my job is the, the chief technology officer. I have responsibility for about 4,000 people. Uh, you know, Wayfair's got about 16,000 employees today or something like that. Um, and my job is really to tech enable everything. So as you know, I think most people know uh, e-commerce through Amazon or through other you know dot-com sites. But everything you do has a huge uh, technology component. And one thing that's interesting about e-commerce companies is they have got to be good at a lot of different things. They've got to be good at marketing. They've got to be good at uh, advertising and ad advertising technology. They've got to be good at search and recommendations, notifications, email programs. For companies like Wayfair, Walmart, uh, Amazon, we've got a large logistics operation that we run. So there's a whole supply chain component to it. We run a big international supply chain. Um, there are, because we're global, there's tax and trade issues. Uh, we manage payments. So there's a whole, and you know more and more privacy and security because we're handling uh, credit cards like all the e-commerce companies are. Uh, and so there's just a myriad of things that, that you do. Every day is different. I, that's what I like about the place. There's no tried and true, like this is going to be my day. And it's even hard to say what a week will be like. Um, but because I'm a, I'm, I'm a senior person in the company, I spend most of my time focused on strategy. Um, you know, the, the assumption that the website runs, that it's stable, that it's high performance, that we ship goods on time, all that's just kind of assumed to work. That's, you know, I, I joke with my boss. That's like, you know, everything's just a ticket to the dance. Everything above that is really what I get paid to do. 
But it really, as a senior executive, I get paid to uh, develop the organization, develop new capabilities, technical capabilities, develop the leadership team, and really look around the corner and project where Wayfair will be in the next two to three plus years, and then go work with my peer group and others and my team to go build those capabilities. And that could be, again, leadership capabilities, it could be technical capabilities, and, and really you know, to where the company's going to be. But pre-pandemic, it was a lot of meetings. I think now it's a lot of Zoom calls or whatever. And um, uh, my job, really, my superpower is really to go and build strategy. And I've been able to do that for most of my career. And for me, that's the fun part because, you know, my wife's an artist. She's super, she can look at something, a canvas, and, you know, turn something into it. I can't do that. But I can look at uh, a company and, and turn... You know, my palette is like the business strategy and or my canvas. And, and that's, to me, that's where I get a lot of fun and excitement and passion. Um, you know, uh, the, the day-to-day running of the business is interesting, but it's not something that I, I'm super passionate about. Right. One of the, the things that really stood out to me was that idea of working on technological advancements within the company. And one that I believe has really revolutionized a lot of different industries is this idea of an affinity list and where... If a consumer purchases something that it gives these recommendations, you may like. So, like, for example, I've been purchasing album vinyls and now it's recommending me that. Or if you use Spotify, it recommends different playlists you may like. So my question to you is, in these elemental stages of working with these companies, uh, how much was that a part of the strategy, like working on how can we use this data and data collection to implement different products for our consumers or services? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question. Um the whole notion of search and recommendations is actually uh, one of the, the crown jewels of, of most of the e-commerce companies, I think, if you or, or digital companies for that matter, right? If you think about it, and this is, this is a really interesting, and I think it's one of the most interesting things that happens today in e-commerce. So if you think about it, you take a company like Wayfair. Wayfair's got 20 million plus items that we sell, right? So we have this massive catalog. And I was, I was telling this to somebody the other day. If you were to just, you know, take one of those and put those into a warehouse, it would be multiple football fields. Um, you know, I don't know how many. I should probably calculate it one day. But, but it's, it's just like, so think about what you're doing. You're, you're trying to give somebody, I mean, imagine I'm overwhelmed going into Costco, Imagine 10 Costco's. I mean, not only could we not walk that, but it's overwhelming, right? We'd probably go down 50 feet down an aisle and pick something just to get out of there. But really, to your point, this is where, you know, math and technology really can bring. And then it's interesting because I sit on the board of another company called The Real Real, which does uh, high-end fashion consignment. And the interesting challenge that we've got is we're a fashion-driven business or a style-driven business. Whether you're selling home furnishings or you know, shoes or fashion, it's something that's even more important because now it becomes infinitely more complicated because it's easy to describe a, uh, a stereo or a Bluetooth speaker or batteries. That, that's pretty easy to do, you know. It has to do this. It has to cost that much. But for something like fashion, my sense of fashion is going to be very different than your sense of fashion. And, you know, the things that will get me excited, you might look at and go, "Not that's not me at all. So, and that's a very individual one-on-one thing. Now, in the old days, like 10 years ago, 
what we didn't have was machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, so the thing, I think one of the most profound changes to this is really the advent uh, in the implementation of machine learning and artificial intelligence, where we can start to use things like affinity diagrams. You know, we can use your buying history, your browsing history, but that's got interesting implications too around privacy and, and things like that, which are super complicated. Uh, and to be honest, are moving targets. But just to put a bow on that, there's a bunch of other things we could talk about, but just to put a bow on that, this is probably one of the most exciting, but also one of the most immature areas of e-commerce. And, you know, again, this is just an area, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on it and go, wow, like, I can't believe how simple we were back then. But this is one area that's going to grow a lot and math and science and and uh, algorithms are going to play a big role in it. That's fantastic. That's great. You know, you talk about the forefront of technology and how you, as the CTO of Wayfair, really stay ahead of those trends and, and, and really make sure that your uh, company um, is adapting and changing and innovating, you know, as technology and times change. But to take a quick step back, Jim, you know, you have had the opportunity to work for a lot of hyper growth tech companies, right? So companies that were in stages of rapid growth when it comes to hiring, when it comes to scaling, when it comes to taking on new challenges, when it comes to developing new technology, breaking into new markets. So I'm just curious to hear your perspective and your thoughts on what you've learned from those experiences, opposed to, you know, the typical more go to a larger company, stay there for 10, 20, 30 years, whereas you kind of hopped around a bit. So just curious to kind of hear your thoughts on maybe how that has impacted you. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think those have all had kind of a profound impact on my career and the way that I think about things. The whole notion of thinking big. So when we launched products at Google, we would talk about launches for a billion people simultaneously. Um, and that you know dwarfs anything that I've ever thought about before. The whole notion of um, creating history. You know, Jeff Bezos used to run around all the time and, and say, you know, it's day one, we're creating history, but the ability to have the audacity and the ability to take risks in a way that you're going to go and create something completely new is just like, to me, mind boggling. And yeah, I remember one time I was presenting to Larry Page uh, and Larry was the, the CEO of Google at the time. And I put this proposal on the table and it was to spend $100 million. And I don't know about you guys, but $100 million is a lot of money. And Larry was like, he looked at, I could tell he wasn't, and I was nervous. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm asked for a hundred million dollars. And, and you know, what are they going to think? And Larry looked at me and I'm like, oh, he goes, I know he doesn't like it. And he, I'm like, okay, Larry, what do you think? And he said, I don't think you're thinking big enough. Like when you come here and ask me for a billion dollars, that's when I'll know you've thought big enough. And for me, it was like exactly the opposite of what I thought he was going to say. Like, why in the world are you proposing to spend $100 million of Google's cash when I think you should be spending a billion. You're not thinking big enough. So again, it's kind of that contrarian view of the world. I mean, I'll give you another example. This probably hasn't seen the light of day in many, many years. But when Amazon first got into toys, um, we knew nothing about getting into the toys business. That was kind of our first big category after books, music, and, and video. And we did it it was really bad. Like, I, I can't even tell you how bad it was. And it turns out that in the toy business, you actually don't, it sounds really bad from an environmental and sustainability standpoint, but it turns out that any excess inventory that you have, you usually just throw it away. 
So after holiday 1999, we were sitting on $50 million of inventory. And this is money we're never going to get back. And I went to go see Bezos and I'm like, again, I was nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, like we have $50 million of inventory sitting around that is no longer any good. And Jeff was like, and I thought, he's going to fire us. And he's like, oh my God, like this is the best thing in the world. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about, Jeff? And he's like, Jim, we now own the online toys business. And, if you, and he said, the way I think about it is, it's not that we're throwing $50 million away, but if I could write a check for $50 million and you would own the online toys business, would you take that bet? And I'm like, yeah, of course I'd take that bet. And he's like, well, how's it any different than what you've proposed? And to me, again, that's kind of that, oh, I hadn't thought about the problem from that perspective. But what you see with these founders and, and you know, these companies is they think very differently. Um, you know, and I, you go back to the Apple ads that the job used to make in, in the, the 90s and, and, you know, where, you know, you want the person who is the cavalier, the maverick, the, you know, the person that bugs everybody. There's a grain of truth to that. These people are the, the people that think differently and they do things completely against the grain. And I think businesses, society, school, they tend to, you know, they tend to ostracize those people. But those are the people that are willing to go do things completely crazy. And, and so thinking that way, you know, there's an ability to move super fast. Like all the, the things that I see with companies that are super successful is they're willing to adapt they're willing to change. They're willing to be self-critical. But the common ingredient is they move super fast. Like, and, and you know, this is the, the, the challenge. I was talking to Nerds about this the other day. You know, we're, we're one of the biggest e-commerce players right now. And we worry about, like, you know, who's our competition. And you can spend a lot of time thinking about that and looking in the rearview mirror. Or you can put all of your energy into, let's just move really super fast so nobody can catch up. That seems like a lot better strategy. Of course, not taking your eye off the rearview mirror. And then one thing I've learned too is you've got to hire the best people. Um, and you've got to build a really super diverse workforce. For me, this is super important because I think at the nucleus of all innovation is a lot of diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of perspective. And I think this is one area, you know, we, obviously, there's a lot of talk. 2020, I think, was a real catalyst around everything happening in the world with respect to Black Lives Matter, diversity. But I think it's super, super important. And I think it, it really underscores the necessity to think about having diverse teams. I mean, uh, diversity is the right thing to do. But I tell companies, and I, I talk to a lot of CEOs about this, Almost every company today is a knowledge-based company. There's very few companies that derive, you know, that, yeah, they build things, you know, but they're really building their value off knowledge. The innovation and creativity of people is really what adds tremendous value to that knowledge. You know, I've got enough, you know, anecdotal and direct experience. The more diverse team you have, the more innovative it will be and the more valuable your company will be. And it's just a super simple. So most of the companies that I've worked around, they're super diverse and they encourage diverse thinking. I mean, Google is that way. I mean, look, you want to come to work tomorrow and have your, high, your hair dyed purple? Nobody, nobody's going to care about that. You want to bring your dog to work? Nobody cares about that. Like those things aren't important. Uh, and then 
I, I think you've got to have an environment where you can foster that diversity. And then also, I think you've got to create a, a place that's fun to go to work every day. I mean, I don't like to work, to be completely candid. Um, I, I really don't. I, I mean, I like to go to work and, and work with great people that I think are fun to be around, that are working on great projects that I'm going to learn and value as, as friends. That, to me, is, is, is a great work environment. Uh, if I have to go to work and work, I probably won't be there very long. And if you look at the history of kind of why I've left companies, <laughs> they were fast companies, fast-growing, exciting companies that got big and boring. And it just wasn't as much fun to go to work every day. And I was like, eh, life's too short. I'm going to go do something that I really enjoy doing. So, No, that's a great perspective. And I think that's very important. That's one of the things we've been discussing. Um, so me and Darius are in this class called uh, Business 71. It's like leadership practices. And one of the the elements is encouraging the heart. And that's really building a strong team, built around fun and encouraging a uh, process and making them want to come there to work. So I just thought of that real quick. But but the question I wanted to ask you is, and Darius kind of touched on this prior um, is this idea of personality traits and the qualities that make a great leader. So you noted um, having that ability to see a vision and curiosity, but I'm curious, are there any more traits that you've seen that are very impactful in leaders? Look, I think in no particular order, uh, having a leader that's relatable and empathetic uh, is super important. I think one of the challenges, I just having a mentoring session with one of the fairly young folks in my org, and I said, you know, I want to be approachable. I'm not an intimidating individual. I'm certainly not a jerk, but I want people to be comfortable walking into my office and telling me straight from the gut, like what's going on, the good, the bad, the ugly of the org. And I might not like the answer to be completely candid, but having the ability and that transparency for people to tell me really what's going on in my org, I think is incredibly important. Again, having the empathy. Look, I was your age one time and I'm sure you look at me and you're like, oh my God, like this guy's old. But the reality is that, you know, I was joking with my 83-year-old father the other day and he's like, God, you know, like, you know, I still see myself as a 20-year-old. I'm just in, in an old person or an older person's body. And I think having that empathy for what your employees, you know, um, you know, working the night shift at Intel where nobody was around and, you know, just having the empathy for what they go through in their own career development. That could be the, the great moments, the moments where it was like, who's my mentor? Like, how am I going to get career advice? I think I see something that's messed up in the org. Who do I talk to? You know, I, I one of my mentors and my, my managers was this guy, Randy Pond. He was the chief operating officer of Cisco. Randy was about one of the most down-to-earth people you would ever know. And he still is like that today. And, and that made him super approachable and super relatable. And I think, you know, that's the one thing I've worked super hard to do as I've continued to grow in my career. I, I, I never get that impressed with myself. Like I have a humility goes a super, I, I'm just not, I wasn't raised that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty humble person. And anyway, I think our number one job as leaders is to be a teacher. Like I always ask the, the one thing that I always ask in any interview that I do is, look, you're leaving your company, uh, maybe to come to Wayfair or wherever, what are they gonna say about you when you leave? Like, what did you do to actually make that place a better place? Um, and what's your legacy gonna be? Um, and I think that, that you know, again, as you get further along in your career and in your life, you, you tend to look back and go somewhat reflectively, what did I do? Like, what's really important? And, you know, to be completely candid, 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys look at these senior executives as I did when I was your age, and, and it's, it, you know, the money, the titles aren't really very important. You get there and you're like, eh, that's kind of a hollow victory, right? Um, and it can be a real rat race, which I won't go into. But at the end of the day, I, I think as, as you get to be more reflective about your life and your accomplishments, it ironically is not material. It's like, what, what did you do to impart and make the world a better place? That's the advice I give my 21-year-old son. It's like, I don't care what you do. You better make the world a better place every day that you're here. And then I think just, you know, I've talked about this. You know, you, I think you've got to find leaders that foster diversity. Um, you know, we have way too many white males in leadership positions and in, in boards. And we all got here to be completely candid because other white males that were older than us looked out for us. Well, that can't continue. So how do we be allies and advocates for people that, you know, they're as good as we are. And in many cases, they're better than we are. How, how do you give them an opportunity? Larry Page used to always say, and I think he, he's spot on on this one, people don't want to be managed. They want to be led. And by that, I mean, you create this compelling vision once somebody gave me a great example of leadership one time, they were like, hey, you know, leadership is really building a team of people better than you, smarter than you. And then you figure out one, you know, you figure out how they all actually want to follow you somewhere. But then the converse of that is get the heck out of their way so they can actually do these great things. And I think, you know, what Larry was saying, what this person was saying are pretty similar. You know, that's that's your job is to figure out how and it's having the self-awareness and to be completely confident in your abilities to go, I don't need to be the smartest person in the room every time. And hopefully I'm not the smartest person in the room most of the time. Um, but if you get to that point, you're like, you know, hey, wow, that's awesome. You know, look, you got a LeBron James. LeBron is not going to carry a whole game. He's got a great team of people that work around him. And, and he's got a big ego. And I think that's what we like about somebody like that. But at the same time, he's also somebody who knows how to pass you know, when he, when the ball needs to be passed and work as a team, uh, team player, and he's out there for a team win, not for, not to embellish his own personal outcome. Yeah, that was great. I really loved everything you just said. Um, I think what really resonated with me was being the notion of being approachable. Um, and like yourself, I am a first generational student. I was kind of raised to be humble, you know, and kind of give back what you've learned. And I kind of really, you know, felt what you said about passing on the knowledge, um, and putting others, you know, who were in your position, helping them along the way. Um, so kind of like with that being said, I'm curious as someone who holds multiple board positions, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the responsibility of a board member and then why you made the decision to join the board of Retail Management Institute? Yeah, there's two kind of boards that I'm on. So, well, let me back up. The motivation for getting on a board is that one, um, that's the governance of the company. There's there's two types there's two types of boards. There's an advisory board. Well, there's actually a number, but there's advisory boards. There's nonprofit boards, and then there's like business boards. Uh, on the business board, you know, I'm going to say this a little tongue in cheek. If you don't you do your job, you can go to jail. <laughs> so that's you know we have a we have we can fire the CEO and we can fire the executive team, but we have a legal obligation, you know, by the Securities and Exchange Commission to ensure that the company's, you know, in the hands of the shareholders and we're the advocate for the shareholders. Um, you know, being on a board, um, it's interesting because we, I mean, it takes a lot of time. You're providing a lot of guidance. It's not 
much different than what I do for my organization, except I do it for other senior executives and other CEOs. Um, now, you know, and, and you've got to find a, a board that, you know, is suited to your personality. And because I'm a technologist, I tend to bring the tech perspective to many boards that I operate on. Uh, I'm on a number of different advisory boards and, and other boards. For the, for the Research Management Institute, the RMI, I really bring the tech element to that board. Um, because of my Amazon days, I, I joke. I mean, in the very early days, I was literally trying to tell Jeff Bezos, like, I'm from Intel. Like, all I know is tech. Like, you do not want to hire me. I know nothing about retail. Like, you should hire, like, I know a ton of other people you should go hire, but I'm not a retail person. And Jeff was like, exactly. That's why I want to hire you, because if I hire a retail person, all we're going to do is get the Walmart way rebaked or, you know, some other company that, that I don't aspire to become. So I joke that, you know, I try and try to escape retail. I spent my entire career trying to escape retail and I finally just given up. And, but I do, I do find it fascinating. It's a, it's a rich set of problems. And another thing that I find super interesting about retail right now is that, again, we used to sit around at Amazon and we were building an e-commerce company. But even in the early days, and this is like over 20 years ago, we talked about building an omni-channel company. And today, and by omni-channel, you guys know this better than I do, but an omni-channel has a brick-and-mortar world, it's got a digital world, and the two are now starting to blend together. And with COVID, ironically, it accelerated everything because we couldn't be in store, so you had to go and do buy online, pick up in store, or curbside delivery. And to me, that's a perfect example of where where is e-commerce, pure play e-commerce, and brick and mortar kind of, and it, you know, the world that you guys are going to lead in the next 10 years is the whole melding of that entire world together. And that there's a huge, huge tech component. Um, the one thing the e-commerce companies have tremendous advantages. They started with a tech first mentality. A lot of the brick and mortar companies weren't tech first. So again, uh, I think being a participant in the RMI and learning from my peers that, that come from very different backgrounds, but also being able to impart some tech, um, you know, I, I view the world through the world of, and the lens of a tech person. Um, that's, that's one perspective. It's not the only perspective, but I can provide that valuable perspective to the RMI and, and, and I have fun doing it. That's great. And one of the things that you touched on a bit that I really enjoyed was the fact that when you are hiring someone to come to Wayfair, you asked them that question about, even though you've accomplished these things, what impact did you have on the world? So I want to ask you that question. I think after accomplishing so much throughout your career, as you look back, what do you believe has been your biggest impact and what motivates you now at this stage in your career to continue? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, it's probably the people that I've influenced. You know, I, I look at, you know, some of the alum that I've worked with and, and They've reported to me, some of these people are CEOs now. Some of them are, they're all, you know, many of them are senior executives in their own right. Some of them candidly have done better than I have, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. Um, but I think really thinking about the people that I influenced um, and, and the difference that I made in people's lives. Uh, I mean, you know, that's, again, you tend to get more legacy focused the older you get. And you think about, you know, I, I, I have a funny analogy or a funny story. I always tell people, you know, does your next role pass the, the, the grandchild test? And they're like, what is that? And I'm like, you know, hey, look, in 20 years from now, you know, if my son has children to be determined, but, you know, 
I want my grandkids to go like, wow, I can't believe like you were part of that. Like you were, you were part of Amazon, like, or you were part of Google or you were whatever, like you, you worked on, you know, the Intel Pentium, which will be in a museum, which is in a museum. It's in the Smithsonian. I mean, to me, that's kind of what's super important. And again, I don't think you get totally impressed with, um, you know, and get enamored with the things that are more material. Those are just things that are, you realize they're not durable. And I, I think more and more about, you know, how do I take what I've learned now and impart it on the next generation of leaders? And it's funny because I told this to my Wayfair team when I first joined. I said, you know, when I was at Amazon in the early days and I was, you know, in my, in my 30s, I never, Jeff used to always, Jeff Bezos used to always say like, hey, we're making history. You guys don't even, because he would run around and like stick this camera in your face and take pictures all the time. And I'm like, you know, stop doing that. No, no, no. In 20 years, you're going to want these pictures because we're creating history. Like, okay, fine. I'm busy. Leave me alone. And then I went to Google and I was like, oh, like, wow, like we're going to make history. And we did. And now at Wayfair, I'm like, okay, all of you that are 20 something years old, like, believe me in 25 years, this may be one of the greatest things you've ever done and you don't even appreciate it. So Enjoy it while it lasts. Occasionally stop, take it all in. But you guys are creating history and you don't even see it because you're not, I have the perspective of having done this a few times. You don't. To you, this is, you know, whatever. You come into job, into work every morning, you've got 50 things you've got to get done. Um, but again, I think you tend to look at how are you, what are you doing to create the legacy? And, and I have a friend who, he actually uh, was the chief operating officer of this company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. And we talk about this quite a bit. And Bill would tell me every decade, I try to reinvent myself. Uh, and it's just thing, and he's done it. And, you know, he's passed away now a few years ago, but every decade, you know, he was like, hey, I retired as the COO. I'm going to go teach for a year. Well, he came to MIT and taught. That's where I met him. And then his daughter started a nonprofit and he ran a nonprofit for a decade. Uh, so again, I think you tend to, to, to get focused on what are you doing to make the world a better place? And I think ultimately, that's all that people are going to remember you by when you leave this place. Like, did you actually do anything good? And that, that'll have more enduring and staying power than anything else you can do. Yeah, I definitely agree that your stand on the world is very important to your, your legacy. I kind of want to ask, you know, taking in your impressive background and learning more about your mindset. If Jim Miller didn't do technology, what would um, Jim Miller be doing? You know, it's funny. I always... I don't have any regrets. Don't take this the wrong way. But uh, I love medicine. Uh, and I come from a very strong family of, of doctors and nurses and things like that. Um, I think, I mean, my one of my passions is still medicine. I helped start Google Life Sciences, now Verily. Uh, I had a great opportunity to do that. I mean, that was awesome. Uh, I still am involved in bio, biosciences in the Bay Area. And I love physics and math. And I I'm an astronomer, um, you know, I mean, I got more telescopes than I probably need, but uh, I consider myself a citizen scientist, you know, Perseverance landed on Mars, you know, I told my founder, we have to reschedule our one-on-one because I have to watch the Perseverance rover land on, on Mars, sorry, I mean, to me, that, that took priority over, that's going to happen once, I'm going to have 50,000 one-on-ones with my boss. And he laughed and I'm like, but you know who I am. I'm like this, you know, Nourish, that I'm this kind of geek at heart. 
that really loves this stuff. And so I'd probably be a scientist or, or a biologist or, a, you know, I look at people like, I mean, let's be perfectly candid. I take my career fairly seriously, but, you know, I look at, I hold people on a pedestal that, you know, like came up with the COVID-19 virus, uh, vaccination or vaccine, sorry, in literally a, a series of weeks. I mean, they sequenced the DNA of the, the virus, the COVID virus, and literally within a few weeks, they had a working vaccine. I mean, to me, I look at that and go, wow, like if you ever get at all impressed with yourself, I think you have to look at that and go, like, that's truly amazing. Um, but again, I mean, yeah, so I'd probably be a biologist or a scientist or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Healthcare, biology are extremely important. Um, and, and who knows, Jim, you know, maybe your next venture will be a uh, biotech in uh, <laughs> mixing the, the um, you know, bio and, and our technology sides here. Um, but great. You know, you've definitely... Jim have answered a ton of our questions, gave us a lot of great insights. And thank you for kind of walking us through all this information and to learn more about you and kind of your background and your experiences and, and, and advice. So just to wrap up this part of the interview, um, I think we're all just curious to know if you could maybe hop in a time machine for us um, to when you were a student at Purdue on campus um, and Jim Miller was getting ready to embark off on his career journey was a knowledge that you know now hindsight you have now um, maybe what's some advice you would give yourself or advice you would give students in general that are getting ready to embark on this career journey yeah ironically to put more to put less stress on yourself I mean I think about I don't know how Santa Clara is Purdue was very competitive and GPA was something very very important I don't know how important it is it's not as important as it used to be but it was super important and I had fun but the amount of stress that that I put on myself I mean I, I maybe that's you know retrospective but um one to be less stressed out about things don't sweat all the the small things I mean like I remember, you know, losing sleep over like, what's my first job going to be? And the reality is that, I mean, it was important at the time, but with the perspective of, you know, a, a 30 plus year career, what I did my first few years had zero impact on what my career path ultimately was. And I think you just have to keep that all in perspective. The, the journey of being a leader is a bumpy one for everybody. I don't think there are many natural leaders. And, you know, I learned the whole notion of being a servant leader. Like, my job is to really take care of my team and my people. I wish I would have learned that much earlier in my career um, because I think that made me a much better, humbler uh, leader that was much less stressed out. And, and the big difference between your generation and my generation is like the ability to start a company for you guys at your age is, is infinitely doable. That, that really wasn't for the most part, entrepreneurialism wasn't even something that was in our vocabulary. And when I was in school in the in the, in the early eighties, um, you guys have capital, you have, you know, phenomenal technology at your hands. You live in a you know, place Silicon Valley, which is arguably the most innovative place on the planet. So I think the, the thing, the ability to be able to take risks, this is when you want to take risks. You don't take risks when you're 55 or 56. You want to take risks when the, you know, the risk reward payoff is, is much, much higher. Um, so I, I think you guys, I look at you and in a good way, I'm very, very envious because the things that you guys can do and it's a truly global place, too, which is something, you know, when I grew up, it wasn't very global. 
Um, I mean, today the world's much smaller. I mean, you know, you guys are much more traveled. You're much more worldly. You're much more diverse. You're much more, uh, you know, I think you have a much greater responsibility. Unfortunately, you know, we gave you guys things like global climate change and, and some of these big global scale problems to go work on. But I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time around, you know, people your age. You guys, I have, I have great respect and uh, I feel pretty good about the fact that we're handing, the, the planet we're handing not in a great shape, but I'm very happy to hand the legacy to you guys because you'll be able to fix some of the problems that we created. Um, so again, super, I'm super impressed with just the tenacity and the energy and, and what you guys have at your fingertips. Um, and I think you, you have the ability to change the world and you demonstrate it time and time again. So I, I feel good about that. Wake up every day and go, yeah, I feel pretty good about the future of the world. It's a, it'll be a better place because you guys made it better. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Jim Miller, for coming on to the podcast. Uh, but before we end, we actually have three customary Voices of Santa Clara questions we ask all of our guests. So the first question is, uh, let's say that you had an ideal Saturday. What activities would you do? Uh, what would that look like for you? What, what would you do on your ideal Saturday, essentially? Well, I'm not one to sleep in, so I start super early. <laughs> it's just my, um, <clears throat> sorry, my thing. Breakfast with my family, I'll do it tomorrow. Walk on the beach in Santa Cruz, uh, you know, hang out, relax, lay on the couch, read a book that I've been reading, wanting to read. In the evening, have dinner with friends and then do astronomy till the wee hours of the morning and start it all over again. Unfortunately, I can do most of those things. <laughs> that sounds great. Oh yeah, quick question. Do you have any book recommendations for the audience and for us? Like, you know, we would love to hear that. You know, it's so funny because um, it's going to be a weird book. It's one of my favorite books, and I probably have read the thing, I don't know, four or five times. It's written by Robert Reich. He was the Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton. It's called In an Uncertain World. And I personally think it's one of the best books that you can read about business. You know, another great book that I've read is Andy Grove's book on high output management. I think it's one of the best. It's super simple to read, but I think it, in its simplicity is is its elegance. Um, and I, you know, I've got I'm a prolific reader. Uh, you know, I tend to read five chapters in and then go, oh, I'm kind of bored with this book and move on. So I've got a bookshelf full of books that have been half read. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be one book that I would read. That was great. Um, next customary question we have for you is if you can listen to one artist for the rest of your life, who would it be and why? It's funny. My, my son, again, is 21, has this uh, theory that your music really stops at 21 <laughs> because you know, your life, you know, you, you don't have as much time to devote to, to life. And plus, when you're growing up, I think there are bands or, or genres that you can relate to because that was formative in your, you know, for me, music is an entertainment vehicle, but it wasn't part of the fabric. It's no longer a fabric of my life. So I really grew up in the, the 80s and the 90s during the whole alternative genre. It would be R.E.M. because I think the music speaks to me. My wife and I loved R.E.M. We went to concerts together. We dated around the REM scene, we've got connections to the band. So for me, it would be REM. And it's just, it, you know, from their first album to their last album, it's just basically the story of my growing up. And, you know, it, it resonates with me and touches an emotional 
you know, I can't, it's music, right? I'm not sure it's completely rational, but, you know. Cool. Awesome. And uh, wrap us up here, Jim. This is a question, actually, I'm very personally curious about. So I know we, we've had the opportunity to talk a few times before. Uh, and I've always wondering about this question. So if you could have dinner um, with well, one person, you know, whether they're dead or alive, um, who would that person be and why? I think it would, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this in two parts. One would be, from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, it would be Albert Einstein. You know, not to go into a lot of detail, the theory of relativity is super simple and it's super elegant. But it's only because you can see it today the way that you know. And and you know, here's this guy, dyslexic, you know, works in a patent office because he can't get a job in academia. And who comes up really looking at the world completely differently and changes the whole. I mean, every every one of us today is touched by the theory of relativity. Your cell phone, GPS, you know, satellite perseverance has to look at relativistic effects. But I really would want to know, talking to Albert Einstein, like, you know, how do you take something completely that's almost hard to fathom and, and look at the world in a completely different way? Like, how did that come about? I think the second person would be Abraham Lincoln. I mean, to me, it, that's one of the, the best examples of leadership. I mean, you know, that we've ever had as a country. Um, and just to think in the face of, I mean, he had to have known that he was setting the seeds for a civil war in the United States. How do you lead through that? And how do you get people, how do you bring, and obviously he was killed, but how do you bring a nation together after that? And we're still feeling, we still have scars of that, to be completely candid, but but just, you know, how do you do that? And what kind, I mean, to me, that's a kind of wavering leadership. It's easy for us to say, oh, I'm a good leader and I, you know, go build this tech stack or whatever. But real global leadership like that, you know, the ability to go and say, hey, I'm going to do something and... But I know it's going to take probably the country down to one of its lowest points in its history, but it's the right thing to do. Like, how how do you get that conviction to do that and bring people along? He'd have to realize that he's also probably putting his life at risk, and it ended up costing his life, right? So how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, you know, he wasn't real, I mean, super educated or anything. I mean, he didn't come from, like... He grew up in a log cabin in Illinois. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that, that whole journey is amazing. But, you know, there's probably a host of other people. But uh, for me, that's super interesting. Fantastic. So that is a wrap on the podcast for today. And again, never fails. Uh, Jim Miller, thank you again for uh, coming out, talking with us. Um, you know, it's always great to just hear your thoughts. And I'm very happy that we now have this on a medium that's going to last uh, forever. So very, very happy uh, to have you come in. Thank you again um, and to all the listeners. Um, thank you guys for uh, tuning in. And um, yeah, Jim, uh, hopefully we can um, have you back, let's say, you know, in a, a, a year or two and kind of see how uh, uh, things have, have been going. So thank you. We appreciate it. Look, when we all get vaccinated post-pandemic, let's all meet up in uh, Santa Clara. And um, let's uh, let's share some uh, stories and, and maybe uh, you guys are I'm too young to drink, so I'll buy you a non-alcoholic beverage. Sorry. Oh no! In two years from now, we'll be good. <laughs> we can we can throw them back. We can yeah, I won't say anything about my 20 year old who just turned 21 last week. So, anyway, that's a whole other story for another day. All right, thank you guys. Have a wonderful weekend and be safe and be careful. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you.